Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GTI Insights, the Global Taiwan Institute's policy podcast. My name is Marshall Reed, and I'm a research assistant here with GTI. And I'm Isabel Eliason, a research intern at GTI. Today, we're so excited to be joined by Didi Kirsten Tadlow, who's a senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Didi also serves as a senior non-resident fellow with Project Synopsis in the Czech Republic, and recently co-edited a really fascinating book with William Hannes titled China's Quest for Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage. After a really long and amazing career in journalism, she now conducts research on a wide range of topics relating to China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, including technology transfer, CCP party operations, and cultural politics. Didi, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we begin, I'd really love to hear a bit about your experiences. What is it that brought you to write so passionately and so interestingly about Asia? Oh, well, hi, everyone. Thanks uh, very much for having me. Uh, It's really nice to talk to the GTI. Uh, Care a lot about Taiwan and Asia in general, as you said. I guess... um, background. Well, born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, So Hong Kong are by birth, Hong Kong are by choice, if you like. Uh, I didn't live in Europe until I was 19 and um, have been basically kind of yo-yoing back and forth between Europe and Asia, Chinese-speaking Asia, whichever language. So mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, ever since. And I guess uh, the issues just um, have been growing bigger and bigger in the last years. And after many, you know, years of being a journalist, I decided it was time to basically deepen my understanding and ability to sort of analyze what was going on in that whole space with Europe, with Asia, with China. Well, perfect. Um, I I think what you've written recently is really important stuff. and I think we, we'd love to have you here again because of your Hong Kong background and you've written so passionately about Hong Kong. And I think it's an interesting time for, for Hong Kong and its relationship with the world, with China. I think for, for throughout 2019, some of 2020, Hong Kong was really one of the top stories in the world. It was really in the, the front pages of newspapers around the globe. And I think it was for a lot of people in the West, in the, particularly in the US and Europe, it was really... Uh, a galvanizing event that showed people what China was doing and made people aware of these issues that previously were kind of on the back burner. And I think that's, that's so important, but I think like so many things in the world with almost every international issue, it's kind of fallen by the wayside, not fallen by the wayside, but sort of been pushed aside by this, this pandemic that is on the front of everybody's mind. So I think for, for all our listeners, it'd be great if you could just give us an update on what's happening in Hong Kong right now. What's, What's China doing? What what tactics is Beijing employing? And have they changed during the pandemic? And finally, you know, how are protesters and activists responding to this? Yeah, well, um, there's a lot to talk about in the sense that what's really begun happening in Hong Kong is something that was building for a long time, and that's the arrival of the power of the Communist Party of China into the middle of a otherwise very freewheeling um, liberal society with an excellent justice system. Um, And that's a process that has been, to be frank, painful to watch um, and remains painful to watch. And I think that it really shows us, you know, probably for the first time ever, what the CCP system is actually like, because we've never really 
seen it arrive and change a very different and open society, which is what Hong Kong was. Hong Kong fundamentally was founded on openness, on trade, on free trade, on an incredible uh, mixture of peoples and ideals and ideas, if you like. Um, and that's sure. changing. I mean, the latest thing we all know about, of course, um, we all know about the uh, state security law, which was imposed on the last day of June of 2020. Uh, I refuse to call it the national security law. You may have picked that up. I don't call it the national security law, although it is officially called that in the English translation of the Chinese law, which was, of course, imposed by Beijing on Hong Kong to deal with uh, these ongoing and very, very large democracy demonstrations. Uh, I don't call it the national security law because I don't think it's about national security, because to me, the concept of a nation is one that represents the interests of all the people in that nation and of that nation. And it's a much bigger and frankly, a, a better concept than state security. I think that this law is about protecting the power of the Communist Party of China from the people. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So it protects the party state. Um, and the last, the latest you know, lovely piece of news I heard was that the the major broadcaster there, RTHK, which is like a fixture of my childhood, if you like, um, <laughs> that it has, uh, you know, basically they've lost their independence. Um, I think they had they've got new leadership. They've been going after individual journalists, and you know, it was modelled on that BBC thing about being state funded but but editorially independent, and a lot of great people went through there. Um, that's changing fast. Another thing recently, just a couple of weeks ago, was the beginning to introduce um, state security teaching at schools and kids as young as six years old are being taught what is state security according to the Communist Party of China and how should they behave in Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, I, and there's a lot of talk about um, how far this is all going to go. Clearly, it's going to go very, very far. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a tough process to watch. And I think that there's a lot of fear around. Um, people are trying to manage as best they can. There's been a lot of emotional strain. There's been a lot of depression around in Hong Kong. Very hard to, for people to deal with. Um, activists, of course, as you all know, lots of politicians have been arrested under the state security law. I mean, I think in sense, essentially what we've seen is a purge. It's been a political purge. The Communist Party has stepped in and is purging Hong Kong of democratic elements. It's like a Leninist purge or a Stalinist purge. They're not, you know, quite as brutal, perhaps. Um, but nevertheless, this is a political purge. And the aim is to change Hong Kong society completely. Uh, the, the other thing, in fact, that I should mention here, which is not talked about very much that I think is happening, is a big economic shift as well, that a lot of property is changing hands. Uh, mainland interests are coming in. Um, money is changing hands. The landscape's changing. And, and you know, I mean, I think that this, the reactions, well, we've seen some politicians fleeing. Um, Ted Hoy, who went to Denmark, we've seen uh, the UK in particular building up as an alternative centre for Hong Kong. We've got some in Germany, Ray Wong and others. Uh, Glacier Kwong, who's up in University of Hamburg doing a PhD. Um, but I think that probably a lot of these people will end up in the UK. Um, well, thank you, Didi. That's that's amazing. I mean, it really is. You gave a great overview here. Um, D, 
do you think that Western countries really have a, a complete enough understanding of China's goals in Hong Kong? I mean, you mentioned that the the complete changing of Hong Kong society is really the primary goal here. Um, what are what are China's other goals here in you know doing this really visible takeover of Hong Kong? And you know what what should Westerners understand more about China's strategy? Well, I think it should be telling Westerners that. China, its government, its party is deadly serious about changing as much of the external environment in the world uh, in such a way that it feels that its power at home will never be threatened again, as it was, for example, in 1989, Tiananmen Square democracy and anti-corruption uprising. Um, And I think that that's um, because... And that's because clearly it has been challenged. I mean, there have been internal challenges from lawyers who want to change things. And they were getting really strong by around uh, the years 2012, something like that, 2013-14. And I was a journalist in Beijing at the time, and I you know, reported a lot of this stuff. People, really amazing people, um, ex-workers, uh, I mean, lawyers, teachers, all kinds of people, simply uh, saying, look, you know, we have the right to have to stand for election and somebody would take a megaphone and stand on the bridge in her city and say, I'm going to stand for the local election. And of course, she was horribly persecuted. So, I mean, this kind of thing has been going on for a very, very long time in China. And I always get the feeling it's as if somebody is standing there above a big bowl of soup and skimming off the top the whole time continuously. The great stuff is rising to the surface and the party's just standing there, skimming it off, skimming it off, skimming it off, you know? Um, And... And I think that simply, you know, they they decided that, and to be fair as well, I mean, there's no question, but that in decades now too, the West has spoken openly about changing China. And I can understand from their point of view um, that this is very threatening. I mean, we've talked about the rise of democracy. We've gone in and tried to, you know, create a legal system with all our experts, etc. We talked openly about the economy of the West changing China and democracy was coming. I mean, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the head of the Communist Party. They might not like that too much, right? So it's a standoff. And China right now is pushing really, really hard. Um, I mean, you you just brought up the the relationship between China and the West and this this threat of changing China. And like you said, China is pushing hard. And I think for a lot of Western academics and, you know, academics and politicians throughout East Asia and Japan and Taiwan, I think there's a lot of worry that this the situation in Hong Kong and China's treatment of it could serve as a template. And you've written that in the past, that it could serve as a template for future efforts to undermine democracy. Oh, I think it's already happening, Marshall. Yeah, I think it's already happening. Um, and I think that you're right, I have written about it. I wrote about Hong Kong in particular because I noticed the pattern that was building there. And essentially, it was the creation of a parallel system of governance. A lot of this went through certain institutions of the Chinese Communist Party. Some of them were of the United Front bureaucracy, others reflective of China's much broader strategy of the United Front, which really takes in everyone in the Communist Party. They all have to work toward that goal. Um And they were literally setting up a parallel system in that before 1997, when Hong Kong reverted to Chinese rule, we were seeing key figures of key institutions such as the CPPCC, um, which is the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is a major bureaucracy of the United Front um, and which has over 600,000 members 
on the mainland of China uh, are members of these consultative conferences, as they're called. And, um, and the United Front itself, of course, being an internal organ of the Communist Party, which has the task of connecting to external organizations in Chinese society and overseas. So basically, characters like Tong Qihua, who, who uh, was the first um, chief executive in Hong Kong after the handover, had in the early 90s already been put into really leadership positions of the CPPCC body uh, in the leadership um, uh, ranks. And there was this, this parallel power base developing. And after 1997, they then moved into Hong Kong government positions. Um, and it basically, it, it's been a really extraordinary thing to track. So one aspect has been the, the sort of political takeover in an almost sort of underground, from underground conspiratorial fashion, but, you know, in happening in plain daylight at the same time. Um, and also then things like um, a great change in society through the arrival creation of many new civil society groups, um, all kinds of things like, you know, everything from from the uh, some, uh, a welfare association to something uh, aiming for technology transfer on the one hand, and then perhaps also, you know, healthy food or great study on the other hand, and all kinds of organizations and societies springing up. Um, and these were also, many of them we can uh, define as uh, being part of this United Front strategy to change the population, to change the way things were in Hong Kong. And um, then, of course, the police as well. We saw great changes in the Hong Kong police force. They began very early on, I believe, which is a fact that's barely known outside of very, very small circles um, until quite recently. It's my understanding that in the US, even in circles that should know better, um, there was a belief that the Hong Kong police force was still um, a politically neutral force. Now, that's simply not the case because I know that it began to change around, well, immediately after the handover. And, you know, people were leaving by the 2000. They were getting out because they knew what was going on, uh, leaving the police force, that is. So you, you can just see how it was this classic sort of takeover uh, model, which the Chinese communists, of course, are very good at. I mean, they essentially did it in China already. I think you're right that there is this tendency in the West to see what's happened in Hong Kong as something sudden. Have you seen parallel efforts happening in Taiwan, building a parallel governing apparatus? Have you seen similar tactics there? Well, um, I think Taiwan's in quite a different situation. It's a de facto sovereign country, which, um, of course, Hong Kong was never in such a strong position. Uh, but, but it also... You know, it, it is uh, sociologically, um, I think it's different in the sense of having much, uh, in some ways, much greater roots uh, through the KMT in the mainland. There is that aspect too, because don't forget that everyone, like most people in Hong Kong, essentially were refugees. But having that, that will then play into things differently. Um, but having said that, um, I would first like to just say that Hong Kong, China's definitely been building up this parallel system, but that didn't mean that it had to happen the way it did. So in a sense, people who think this was very sudden work were also right. Um, and the trigger, of course, was these massive demonstrations, which were incredibly threatening to Beijing. So in a sense, they were definitely doing this work. They were preparing the ground, but whether or not it would finally happen or happen the way it happened 
you know, that was that was, I think, dependent on other more fluid factors. So as always with China, especially it's a combination of of circumstances and plans and then the ability to react quickly, to react quite, you know, flexibly to changing circumstances. It's a combination of factors. But to get back to Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan is clearly, in a sense, the next target. I think they've already um, made a lot of uh, moves in the information space, certainly um, in terms of uh, that's quite well known, in fact, and there's some really great people working there on things like DoubleThink Lab. You may, you, I'm sure you'll, you'll know of them. Uh, yeah, TTCAP, Puma Shen, really, really great guys. Um, spreading awareness and being very smart about how to deal with disinformation, misinformation, hybrid threats, manipulation. But of course, um, I do think that the long-term challenge remains. I mean, I think that a lot of the factors that were, are at play or were at play in Hong Kong are mirrored in Taiwan in some ways. When I look at some, when I look at images or I read reports and I see things, I talk to people, I uh, notice United Front organizations, which have always had a very strong focus, not just on Hong Kong, but also on Taiwan and Macau, um, very active in Taiwan. So it's, you know, going to be a question of keeping things out in the public domain, um, remaining um, open, remaining transparent, and also really just making huge efforts to to expose what's actually happening. And it's that's 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 quite hard. You need support. You need you need proper investment as well um, in order to achieve all of that. Sure, I mean I. I think our conversation, you know, it's been limited to East Asia so far, to China and Taiwan and Hong Kong. But, you know, I, I think you've made it clear in the past that this is this is not a local issue. This is not just a regional issue. This is a global issue um, that you've got an, a, a vast authoritarian government stepping in on a really vibrant, pluralistic democracy. And I, I think that's a threat to democracies around the world. And, you know, as you put it, it is kind of a testing ground for influence activities, united front activities, disinformation activities. So can you elaborate on this a bit, you know, for leaders in democracies around the world or just other countries around the world? What what can you take away from this? Well, I think that um, what happened in Hong Kong and the attempts ongoing in Taiwan too, Macau was sort of co-opted, if you like, a long time ago, um, are certainly underway and have been underway for decades in other places too. For example, Australia, uh, for example, Germany, uh, certainly the United States as well, the UK, all over the world, really anywhere. And I mean, it's because, you know, it's essentially the same tactics everywhere. And in, in this whole situation, the um, again, the, the political organization back home, the Communist Party's you know, really highly organized, of course, there's all kinds of things going on, people are people, um, things happen, things go wrong, or people mess up, whatever. Um, and there's corruption, yes. Um, but essentially, it's highly, really toughly organized. And that means that they've got ability also to project power outward under the surface. I mean, we have to remember that the Communist Party essentially was well, was completely a conspiratorial organization. It grew up from the underground and it was, in fact, its extraordinary ability at intelligence that enabled it to win the Chinese Civil War. They were very, very good at intelligence. And Zhou Enlai, the first premier who died in 1976, 
was, of course, the spymaster. Um, he always led intelligence efforts and, in fact, was deeply involved in the United Front strategy, which co-opted the rest of society that wasn't directly Communist Party. Um, and I think that this is exactly what we're seeing being projected and at work overseas. Um, done studies here in Germany where I identified 230 uh, groups that were directly or indirectly um, part of this kind of network of influence, interference thinking, uh, interests. And they can be really, you know, they start out really, um, really sort of innocent sounding, like this nice group in Beijing reaches out to a nice classical music society in the town of Mainz, southwestern Germany, and says, hey, wouldn't you like to get a PIPA group over from China? And they say, well, yeah, we would, because, you know, Germans are value high culture. They have a lot of wonderful music here. Um, so over they come and fast forward 25 years and this same society, the same outreach has turned into a Germany wide network of nearly uh, three dozen organizations, German-China friendship societies, and they're not just playing music anymore, although they're still doing that and that's part of it. Um, they're, you know, doing AI and traveling to EU, de taking delegations to EU to deepen Germany-China cooperation and trade and the Belt and Road initiative and health, med tech and, and, and. So it just grows and grows, you know, and part of that, of course, um, is also the natural outreach because China is a big country. It's got a lot to offer the world for sure. But the fact that it's also so, you know, the power is so tightly controlled and circles around the Communist Party is really the fundamental issue we're talking about. And just to be clear, of course, the group that reached out from Beijing, um, CPAFSC, is not itself the United Front, but it is a uh, part that's under the foreign ministry and um, does exactly the same kind of work. So it's very much, it is indirectly related to uh, the United Front organization, certainly part of the United Front sure. strategy. Interesting. I mean, I think it's a, the most challenging part right now is that it is this incredibly complex, multifaceted influence campaign. I mean, right. so many small things that seem harmless, like you said. Right. And I think... That's crucial. It, that it seems... Yeah. Right, right. And I, I, I think it seems like, at least in Asia circles and in policy circles, that experts are starting to come around and start to understand the, the scale of these influence operations and right. some of the consequences. But, you know, it does seem as though... The U.S. the the West is still lagging far behind of understanding this. So, what what can Western states do to really improve their ability to to counter these tactics? And you know, going a step further, what can they do to maybe even change Beijing's calculus and potentially deter it from pursuing these tactics in the future? Yeah, those are two great questions, and I spend quite a lot of time thinking about them, um, not just in the West, but also, you know, in terms of Southeast Asia, for example. Um, Africa is really important as well. You know, I think that we, you know, I think that none of this, you know, that I think there's great ability for for friendship, you know, to, to use a maybe an overused word in this context. Um, but for true cult cultural interchange, exchange, 
between you know China and the West, uh, etc. Um, but of course, the problem is that the stuff coming out of China is not independent, and so that just means that it's it's as if people are playing some kind of a sport, but one guy's playing squash and the other guy's playing you know tennis or something like that. We're just not playing the same game because our systems are so profoundly different. And I think also our concepts of what it means to be a person, what is a lovely German word for that, it's a German word for most things, <laughs> usually quite long, but this one's not too long. It's a um, Menschenbild. So the, the picture of what it means to be human, um, you know, are very different under uh, the Communist Party and then in, in other kinds of societies that are differently structured. So that's our fundamental problem, of course. Um, it's not about China per se. It's a systemic issue. And what can we do? I mean, you know, it's really remarkable how far behind the curve we are. Um, I did a story because while I'm now at think tanks um, and such, like I also still do some journalism. And I did a story for Newsweek uh, back in October where I um, worked with a brilliant researcher and the two of us, um, you know, established that there were at least 600 organizations currently functioning in the United States that have certainly um, are connected to persons and institutions of the New United Front strategy uh, in such a way as to make it necessary to ask questions about undue influence and also interference. And I'm talking business as well as all just all kinds of areas of life and again you know this is built up so slowly over the decades of unquestioned engagement which was we have to say pushed by the US by US politicians we all know about Kissinger but there's many many other politicians who played huge roles in this and in some ways also pushed on the rest of the world if you like or encouraged you know, the US encouraged the rest of the world to follow its suit. So, so there is that issue, you know, how do we change this safely? This is something I think a lot about now. I think that, first of all, we simply need to up our knowledge levels, we need to up our skills levels, we need to start investing in, in talent that understands the situation, we need to start um, examining our own assumptions about how business works about how economy works for example is this sort of neoliberal view that the state in the economy is always bad is that can we afford that any longer perhaps the state should be playing a kind of a active role but you know a soft role but an, uh, an active role helping here and there you know um, in order to do things that work in our economic and democratic framework but nevertheless mean that companies aren't just hung out to dry because they're so dependent on China at this point that they uh, really can't exit that market. And, and that's really our Achilles heel to, to a large extent. So I think, you know, a lot of what we need to do is to start rethinking our own behavior and our own assumptions. And that's, you know, it's going to be quite painful. That's really interesting. I think the tension in Europe with Chinese influence and technology has become especially apparent because of all the conflict with Huawei and 5G, which of course are both totally linked to China. So next we want to know a little bit about um, China's interference tactics and how they rely on advanced technology. Are there any fields of technology where China has an advantage over other countries 
And are there any particular fields where countries like the U.S. and the EU should work to maintain their advantage? Yeah, goodness. Well, yeah, and this is a, this all is a huge area because I think that for the Communist Party, I think it really sees the fight with the United States, and unfortunately, I think it does see things in those terms as going to, that it's going to be won and lost on the field of science and technology, if you like. Uh, business and technology, economic, you know, economy and technology, because the military was going to spring from all of that. It already does, uh, always has done. So, well, we wrote a book. Um, uh, you may know um, it's called China's Quest for Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage. Uh, I wrote with a wonderful team, many of whom are in the US, also some in Europe and Australia. And, you know, this is exactly what we were looking at was what is uh, China doing in this area of technology transfer? You know, when people think of technology transfer from the West to China, they usually think of this issue, which is called forced technology, which really means if you want to do a company, then China says, okay, you can do a joint venture here, but you've got to hand us a technology that you want to manufacture from. And people call that forced technology. In theory, it's not really forced. If you think about it, a company can say, sorry, no, we're going to go to a different market where they don't make us do this. Um, and why does why does that act of handing it over matter well because usually technology is the result of years of investment and research um, in, in you know an IP comes out of that investment and research so if companies can't hang on to the technology and make money then they're you know not getting back their investment and they're overall failing if you like so this does matter like who produces the IP and do they get to hang on to it or not um, it's not just a question of Westerners being greedy you know that's simply not it's just not that simple um, and you know, what I think that what's important to understand is that forced technology is actually uh, something called trade for tech. So that's one way of understand a better way of understanding what it is. And it's one of only 32 ways in which the party state accesses foreign technology for itself, for its economy, for its military, for its society. And we outline those 32 ways in the book. Um, and, you know, most of them are a lot less fair than this so-called forced technology or trade for tech arrangement because the people with the technology don't even know what's going on a lot of the time. But the long and short of it is that China was terribly behind. It's no longer terribly behind because of all these methods and also because it's built up a very, very, very large system of technology spotting and extraction around the world carried out by as they say in Chinese, by many ways. And that means legal, illegal, grey zone. Uh, so espionage at one end, uh, you know, your PhD student going home to a technology park, um, commercializing it at home to, a, you know, all these different ways and methods. And they are quite brilliant at the system that they've built up to achieve all of that. So what can you, the US and Europe do? You know, I think we need to do two things at the same time. We need to protect ourselves, our base. Our knowledge base, our business base, our technology base, a lot of bases. But at the same time, simultaneously, we can't just be defensive. We also need to get out there, re-engage, um, keep doing what we do best, which is protect these really fundamental core issues like the notion of a good justice system, of an open society, of a free media. And I think, you know, fixing some aspects of our own society is going to be a part of that. And I'm thinking here particularly of the big tech giants in the U in the U.S. as well, uh, which engage in very monopolistic practices. And it's my great hope that, um, in fact, some of these movements underway to change that will actually work and people will see that 
the West is better than it perhaps has seemed in the last years. Sure. Well, Didi, thank you so much. I mean, I, I think you, you covered a lot of ground here, obviously. But I mean, at the core here, we, we love talking to you about Hong Kong and so much of this, that it is this kind of, it, it could seem like a relatively small thing. I mean, a relatively localized thing, but it really is universal. And it really is this truly global phenomenon and really an example of what yes, it is. Beijing is right. doing. Um, right. I mean, you know, that phrase, uh, that phrase canary in the coal mine is overused. <laughs> but I do actually think that Hong Kong is the, the, the example um, of what can happen. And I think that we need to pay a lot of attention to it and really uh, try and hang on as best we can. Absolutely. Well, Didi, thank you for joining us today. And for, for everyone listening, I, I really do encourage you, if you're interested in these topics, you really can't do better than Didi's recent book, which is called China's Quest for Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage, which is available on Amazon, wherever you get your books. Um, Didi, thank you again. Thank you so much, Marshall. It was really nice. Perfect. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Again, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us for another episode of GTI Insights. And thank you also to the great staff and interns at GTI for all their help with really every step of producing this podcast. And finally, thank you to Joe Ross and his band Rorima for providing the music for the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief, our podcast, our seminars. You can also listen to more episodes of GTI Insights on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been GTI Insights.